There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, this might just be my personal opinion, but I find that one of the more ridiculous things in life is when entertainment media, you know, TV, movies and the what, when they're praised for being so realistic. Because first of all, it's always the same kind of reality. It's always the same grim, dark, violent for the sake of violence, nonsense with a washed out colour palette. And secondly, another thing that annoys me about these reality based films is that they always make sense. That's not reality. It's still just neatly packaged fiction, only this time with an indie soundtrack. Reality is messy and jagged. Sometimes, even after we have lived and experienced something, the closest we can ever come to understanding what actually happened might not be anything more than a guess. And loose threads aside, there's plenty of things that have happened in real life that are just plain weird. Things that would, in a film, be considered unrealistic. Like, for example, a murder investigation starting with a shark throwing up a human arm. It was the 25th of April, 1935. A Thursday, but as it was Anzac Day, it meant that the entire city was enjoying an afternoon of free time, now that the morning sombre ceremonies had been replaced with a more carnival atmosphere. It was this sense of festival that saw many people heading down to the Coogee Aquarium to view the latest specimen that had just been reeled in. A massive four and a half metre one tonne tiger shark. A beautiful monster that had just been caught off the coast from Arubra only a week previously. However, during that week there had been reports that the shark wasn't doing so well. It had so far refused to eat and was swimming listlessly from one end of the pool to the other. Then, at about 4.30 in the afternoon, while a huge crowd of families and sightseers were looking on, the shark suddenly began to convulse. It thrashed around in the water, beating it to a foam, turning it white. Then, the shark started to vomit. Now, I don't know if anybody's actually seen a shark vomit, but uh, visual's probably coming to you anyway. Putrid, rotting meat suddenly contaminated Coogee's pristine pools, and by the time it was all over and the water had calmed enough for people to see again, the shark had disgorged a rat, a bird, a number of bones, pieces of another smaller shark, and a human arm. A left arm, to be precise, with a length of rope still tied around the wrist and a tattoo on the upper arm, a tattoo of two boxes squaring up, ready to fight. Now, needless to say, this caused quite a sensation. 
The arm was retrieved and the police were called. At first there was the suspicion that it might have been the arm of Ernest Duggan, whose body had been found on the rocks at Canal six weeks previously. He had been missing his right arm from the elbow down and the entirety of his left. However, this was soon dismissed, as it would have been more badly decomposed. Actually, considering the fact that it had been in the shark's stomach for at least a week, the arm was in surprisingly good shape. Good enough for the boxing tattoos to be easily recognisable, and even for an attempt to be made at fingerprinting. A report of the events and a photo of the tattoo were published along with a plea for anyone who might be able to identify it. Soon, a man by the name of Edwin Smith came forward and claimed that the arm was that of his brother's, James Smith. Jim Smith, as he was more commonly known, had been missing since the 12th of April when he had left his Cronulla home late in the afternoon, informing his wife that he intended to do a bit of fishing while the light was still good. He had not been seen since. Now, because Jim Smith had a criminal record, his fingerprints were on file, and soon the police were able to confirm that this was, indeed, Jim Smith's left arm. And for a moment, that seemed to be the end of it. Shark attacks are nothing new in Australian waters, and as there had been a couple of victims earlier that year, many simply wrecked this up to an unfortunate fishing accident. On the 30th of April, the Newcastle Sun reported this. Quote, it was stated by the CIB today that there was little, if any, doubt that the armour disgorged by the shark at Coogee Aquarium was indeed that of James Smith. The detectives' inquiries into Smith's movements so far have given them no reason to suspect that before Smith was taken by the shark that he was the victim of foul play. The shark died last night and the detective supervised its dissection, but nothing more was found in the stomach. Police say that the fact that the arm was not digested after eight days may be accounted for by the rope attached to it becoming entangled in the shark's teeth or in its gullet. End quote. There, done. Reality. Straightforward and simple. It was a shark. He was eaten by a shark. Well, that's what everybody agreed with, until the coroner came back with his findings, and a rather dramatic conclusion. Jim Smith's arm had not been bitten off. It had been cut. Owing to the fact that they now had an arm with a rope around the wrist that had been cut off from the body and not in a medical way, the police then quickly turned their case around from solved to open investigation. Now remember, Jim Smith's fingerprints were on file. He was a known criminal, small time but regular. He'd flitted between jobs of varying legitimacy, sometimes a boxer sometimes a builder, sometimes seen running gambling dens and saloons, but at the time of his death, his occupation was perhaps the most risky he'd ever undertook. Jim Smith was a police informer. Owing to that fact, open investigation now turned into murder investigation. A search for more conclusive evidence of a murder began, with the police using boats to dredge the waters around Cronulla and Maroubra and Port Hacking, 
and then, as a last resort, decided to start searching for clues via a flyover, the very first time aeroplanes had been used to search for criminal evidence in Australia's history. They also used, quote, the most powerful glasses in Australia, end quote, just a really good pair of binoculars, but to no avail. No other part of Jim Smith's body was ever found. Tracing his final movements, the police managed to determine that Jim Smith had last been sighted at the Cecil Hotel in Cronulla, enjoying a drink with longtime friend and fellow criminal Patrick Brady. Brady himself seemed to be more of an elite crim than Smith and was known for his excellent forgery skills. There seemed to be nothing abnormal about the two together. By all accounts, their behaviour didn't warrant much notice. Early in the evening, they left together, taking a cab to Brady's house in Gunnamatta Bay. And that was the last time James Smith was ever seen. Now, this could have been where the investigation stopped. James Smith was last seen in the company of Patrick Brady. That's it. But then there was the very interesting testimony from a cab driver that provided a new thread in what the media had already dubbed as the shark arm case. The morning after Smith's disappearance, Patrick Brady hailed a cab and asked to be driven all the way across town over the newly constructed Sydney Harbour Bridge to the North Shore, to Lavender Bay, to the distinguished suburb of McMahon's Point. In fact, small-time criminal Brady had been asked to be taken right to the very home of the well-to-do middle-class businessman by the name of Reginald Lloyd Holmes. Now on the surface, Holmes was the very picture of respectability. He was married with two children and ran a highly successful boat building business. He was regularly seen dining at the Royal Sydney Yacht Club and was a pillar of the local Presbyterian church. But it was also an open secret that Holmes ran a lucrative smuggling racket, as well as overseeing various insurance scams, both of which centred around his boat business. For the smuggling, Holmes would send lackeys just outside the heads of Sydney Harbour, where they would wait for the larger cargo ships that would sail up and down the coast. These ships would then throw contraband over the side, such as cigarettes and cocaine, and Holmes's crew would catch them, take them into his boats, and sell them on. Insurance scans usually involved over-insured boats that Holmes's company had built, which had then suddenly and mysteriously become wrecked, such as the Pathfinder, a pleasure cruiser that had sunk near Terrigal just one year earlier. Now, his boat building business and his smuggling business must have been going pretty well, as by today's standards, Reginald Holmes was a millionaire. Now, what exactly went down between the boxer, the forger, and the businessman becomes pure speculation from here on in. You see, further investigation revealed that one of Jim Smith's many different jobs was working for Reginald Holmes, either in the more legal boat building section or as one of Holmes's smugglers. It was probably through this connection that Smith introduced Holmes to Patrick Brady, and the two of them used Holmes' connections and Brady's forging skills to set up a new scheme, forging the signatures of Holmes' business partners and clients to start passing fake bank checks. Now, it's completely unknown what event caused the relationship between these three men to sour. 
It has been theorised that Smith was somehow blackmailing Holmes, although what kind of leverage Smith had over the businessman is up to debate. Although, considering Smith was a police informant, he was probably threatening to expose Holmes's operations unless he was paid handsomely to keep his mouth shut. Well, whatever it was, it seemed to be enough to threaten Holmes's comfortable position in society, all the way to the point where he hired Brady to kill Smith and fix his little problem. It's believed that Brady was the one that murdered Smith, dismembered him, and then went to Holmes's house to confirm that the job was done. But all of this is nothing more than a theory. Aside from a single cab ride, there was no hard evidence to connect these men. Both Brady and Holmes were brought in for questioning on the 16th of May, with Brady admitting that he'd met with Holmes around the time of Smith's disappearance, but with Holmes denying that they even knew each other. While it was clear that they were lying, with nothing more to go on than a hunch, and with Holmes's expensive lawyer in his corner, both men were released. And with no new leads, the investigation for a time stalled. Then, just four days later, on the 20th of May, 1935, things got weirder. The police were called to Lavender Bay, where Reginald Holmes had been reported acting strangely. He was out on the bay in one of his speedboats, and it appeared that he was having some sort of nervous breakdown. He was driving erratically, drinking heavily, and then out of nowhere he pulled out a 32 caliber pistol and shot himself in the head. He shot himself in the head badly. The bullet flattened against the bone and merely knocked him out, and he went tumbling off the side of the boat. However, in a strange echo of Smith's detached left arm, a rope became tangled around one of Holmes's wrists and kept him attached to the boat, saving him from drowning. The water revived him and he clambered back inside, but at this point, the water police were now coming out in boats of their own, calling for Holmes's surrender. He did not. <laughs> he ran, and for the next four hours, he led police on what is now considered to be one of the longest, craziest boat chases that has ever been seen in Sydney Harbour. He sped underneath the bridge and zigzagged rapidly through morning ferry traffic, causing havoc and delays as he went. Off between Kirribilli and Benelong he went, past Fort Denison, zipping all the way past the entrance and through the heads and out of the harbour, all the way into open ocean. By the time Holmes finally gave up and surrendered, he'd led police on a four hour long chase that had seen them end up over two kilometres out to sea. When the police boarded his speedboat, Holmes, with dried blood now caked across his forehead, was reported to have babbled that... Jimmy Smith is dead, and there's only one left. Holmes was not arrested, but rather hospitalised under armed guard, where he remained for the next few weeks before being released. During his time in hospital, Holmes had told the police many rambling stories that were seldom consistent even with each other, except on one point. Holmes would always squarely point the finger at Patrick Brady as the one who had murdered Jim Smith, although the motive as to why was never made clear. 
Holmes at one point had alleged that Brady had come to his home at McMahon's Point with Smith's severed left arm and that Brady had used that to threaten Holmes's life and blackmail him. Holmes then said he threw the arm into the oceans around Cronulla, although this story was never confirmed and the cab driver that took Brady to Holmes's home never recalled Brady carrying a package that could have contained an arm. Regardless of Holmes's changing story, the fact that he was now willing to testify against Brady in court was enough for the police, who were looking desperately for any sort of conclusion to this bizarre case. Holmes was going to be their star witness in the shark arm case, and the date was set for the 12th of June, 1935. The day before, on the 11th of June, Holmes made a withdrawal of £500 from his bank account. That evening, he told his wife that he was meeting with someone and that she shouldn't expect him back until after 1am. He'd seemed nervous, but more controlled than what he had been over the previous weeks. His wife walked him to his car, where he kissed her goodnight, and drove off. Reginald Holmes' body was found the next morning. He was slumped over the steering wheel of his car, which was parked on Hickson Road in the shadow of the bridge, looking out across the harbour to the other side to his home in Lavender Bay. He'd been shot three times, just beneath the heart. At first, police suspected suicide, but then it became clear that this was another murder case. Although two men were arrested and charged, Albert Stannard and John Patrick Strong were both later acquitted due to poor evidence. It has even been suggested that Holmes, using his £500 he'd withdrawn earlier, had taken out a contract on his own life, rather than face whatever humiliation or consequence he so feared in court. He was cremated the very next day, leaving behind an estate that was valued over £34,000, which would be millions of dollars today. He was 34 years old. Holmes's body was discovered mere hours before Patrick Brady was put on trial, and with their star witness now gone, the prosecution fell to pieces, particularly after a somewhat cynical yet fairly brilliant ploy from Brady's lawyer. It was argued that there was simply not enough substance to even begin an inquest into murder because, quote, an arm did not constitute a body, end quote. Oh yeah, Brady's lawyer had pointed out that seeing as how they had never found any other part of Jim Smith's body, that it was actually a possibility that Jim Smith was still alive. An arm does not constitute a body, he could be walking around just with a right hand, not his left. But if he was, he was never seen again. Without a witness, with no other evidence, and with a rather ingenious, somewhat ridiculous ploy from the defence, the entire case fell apart. Patrick Brady was found not guilty and acquitted of the murder of Jim Smith. But that wasn't quite the end of court for Brady. Perhaps they were frustrated, or maybe the following evidence only surfaced after such a long investigation into Brady himself, but the moment Brady stepped outside the court and back into the world, 
he was promptly re-arrested and charged with forging a money order of over £400 earlier that year while in Hobart. He appeared in court the next day and was once again acquitted. Life for Patrick Brady quietened down after that and he doesn't appear much in the news until his death at Concord Hospital on the 18th of April 1965. He had been 76 years old. For the last 30 years of his life, Brady had steadfastly maintained that he was in no way involved in Jim Smith's death, and his story never changed and never wavered. If he did know something about it, he took that information to his grave. Both the murders of Jim Smith and Reginald Holmes remain unsolved to this day. Nobody knows exactly what led to the deaths of two men. What could small-time crook Jimmy Smith have possibly had over either his fellow criminal Brady or millionaire Holmes? What frightened a rich, powerful man like Holmes to the point where he tried to kill himself before having a spectacular public breakdown and leading the police on the longest water chase in Australia's history? Who was Holmes supposed to meet the night he died? And what was the £500 for? It's been 83 years and everything is still just speculation and the shark arm case remains one of the strangest unsolved mysteries in the world. And the only one to begin with a shark throwing up. And finally, not much to do with the case, but just because this is another pet peeve of mine, I just have to let you all know now Sydney Harbour is not actually called Sydney Harbour. It's Port Jackson. The only Sydney Harbour in the world is in Nova Scotia in Canada. But I said Sydney Harbour rather than Port Jackson because most people don't know what Port Jackson is. It's kind of funny, isn't it? The harbour next to Sydney is not called Sydney Harbour. That's the reality of the situation. But it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.